It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, November 4th, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The United States is attempting intense diplomacy in Israel, calling for humanitarian pauses while Israel continues to attack in the north. And another terrorist group leader calls for wider war. This is all about Iran trying to achieve its objective, drive the United States out of the region militarily and also destroy the state of Israel. And they're dead serious about it. And they're certainly capable of expanding this war to accomplish it. I'm Jared Halpern. The new Speaker of the House is finding his footing with major spending challenges over Israel, Ukraine, the border, and keeping government open. Well, Mike Johnson is probably going to have a very similar speakership to Kevin McCarthy. Now, I don't mean by that. That means he's going to be shown the door in a few months. But he has the same types of problems because he has the same members. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. On Friday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Israel, saying he was there to engage in intense diplomacy. And part of that in his talks with Israeli officials after meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu was the possibility of a humanitarian pause in the fighting in Gaza. A number of legitimate questions were raised uh, in our discussions today, including how to connect a pause to the release of hostages. How to ensure that Hamas doesn't use these pauses or arrangements to its own advantage. Netanyahu said in his own speech, Israel refuses a temporary ceasefire that does not include the release of hostages. Blinken said among the top priorities for the U.S. We need to continue to prevent escalation of this conflict. It's spread to other areas and other theaters. But said another priority is protecting Palestinian civilians and getting humanitarian aid to the region. Netanyahu and other Israeli officials say Hamas is using fuel sent in there for their own nefarious purposes. This week, one Hamas leader, Ghazi Hamad, made it clear in an interview what they want. We must teach Israel a lesson, and we will do this again and again. The Al-Aqsa flood is just the first time, and there will be a second, a third, a fourth, because we have the determination, the resolve, and the capabilities to fight. And as Hamas commits to continue the attacks, another terrorist group leader weighed in, the leader of Hezbollah in Lebanon to Israel's north, said they've already been engaged in the fight since the day after October 7th. As far as escalation goes, Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah encouraged Iran's proxies to continue the attacks on U.S. facilities and troops in the region. The uh, Iraqi uh, Islamic resistance in Iraq has attacked the uh, uh, U.S. occupation bases in Iraq and Syria because it is the United States directing the war in Gaza. It must pay the price for its occupation and crimes in Iraq, Syria and Palestine. He said the goal of wiping out Hamas is laughable, even as it is Israel's stated goal, and the Biden administration has backed that. What further complicates it is the mission uh, that the national leadership in Israel has assigned to its military, which is very different than the previous military incursions into Gaza you know, as a result of uh, Hamas's hostilities. General Keene is a retired four-star general, the chairman of the Institute for the Study of War and Fox News senior strategic analyst. The mission they've given them is to dismantle Hamas's military and terrorist organization and its political entity. 
In other words, Hamas would no longer govern the Gaza Strip or the Gaza Territory, and they would no longer be an effective military or terrorist organization. And what that portends for them is a, a very systematic, lengthy, deliberate military operation that will likely take weeks and months uh, to execute, as opposed to something in the past that was very hard and fast, where they would move from the east to the west very rapidly, kill as many Hamas and capture as many as they could, destroy the military infrastructure, and after a couple of weeks, get out of there. Uh, and the purpose of those missions was to set Hamas back a number of years. Mm-hmm. So this mission by itself dictates a completely different approach, and that is why you see uh, the military having surrounded the city of Gaza. Yeah. Now they'll be going into it systematically to clear it, the Hamas military and terrorist organization. Uh, General, and, and they're if, going sl- slow because they're trying to preserve their casualties, keep the casualties down to a, a minimum. But they, they will go up for sure. Is that, but that's to my point. That's to another point, though, is, General, are the hostages still alive, do you think? Well, we, uh, the Israelis may have some uh, color on that. They're likely not going to discuss that. I don't know. I would assume yes. Uh, now, some of them could have been killed. Uh, you know, as a result of uh, penetration bombs uh, attacking uh, the tunnels, uh, because they've been doing quite a bit of that. Yeah. Uh, from what I understand, there's about 300 miles of tunnels, and they've they've taken down about 100 miles of it. Um, oh, wow! So I it's didn't possible that, uh, that I don't know what kind of resolution they have on where the hostages are, and they're certainly not going to discuss that with anybody. Uh, But, yes, it is possible that some of the hostages have been killed. Now, it's in Hamas's interest to protect those hostages and preserve them because they give them leverage uh, to negotiate with the Israelis in terms of uh, slowing their operation down or going to a ceasefire. Um, And so there's nothing that the Hamas is going to do at this point to endanger the hostages purposely. They would be uh, there to protect them. Let me ask you, Hamas leadership has said this past week what happened October 7th was just the beginning, that they will do this again and again. I'm sure you saw that interview with Ghazi Hamad. And John Kirby quoted him at the White House. Another Hamas leader this past week said, the Palestinians who live in Gaza and their well-being is the responsibility of the U.N., not ours, not the responsibility of Hamas. When you look at, 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 at what Hamas leadership is saying out loud, what does it mean for Israel's efforts tactically here? If you have an enemy telling you, we are going to do this to your civilians again and again, and oh, by the way, we, have, we don't even care about our own civilians, that, they're the responsibility of the UN. What do you do with that? Yeah, well, that's why they've given them the mission you know, to, to render the organization ineffective, to kill as many, capture as many as they possibly can. Because they, they, they're fed up with this, I mean, particularly after October the 7th. And that kind of blustering rhetoric uh, does not surprise the Israelis. They, they're used to hearing it, you know, from their, their leadership that is uh, in Doha and, yeah. and well-protected and not involved in the war itself. So that, that's why the mission is assigned. And in terms of the people of Gaza, 
I mean, it's pretty obvious they've got 300 miles of tunnels, and none of those tunnels are devoted to protecting the people. They never spent a dime on mm-hmm. building bunker infrastructure you know, throughout Gaza for the 2.2 million people that live there so they would be afforded the protection uh, when the airstrikes come. And contrast that to what is going on in Ukraine. As best I can determine, I just came back from Ukraine, uh, having spent a week there, just about everybody that I'm aware of has some place to go in terms of a bunker or, or an underground facility uh, to be able to get out of the bombing because the government is, is obviously very interested in protecting its population. Mm-hmm. Hamas receives $30 million a month from Qatar and has never spent any money whatsoever in building civilian bunker infrastructure to take care of their population. That's how dismissive they are of it, in addition to the comment that you just made about it. Tell me a little bit more about what we can expect here, especially in terms of widening conflict. And I want to start on that front by asking you about what Hezbollah's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, said on Friday. He spoke at length. And he said, many ask us, you know, when we're going to engage. And he said, we've been engaged since October 8th. In fact, he said they're engaged in an unprecedented battle in Israel's north. And he praised the proxy attacks on U.S. facilities in Syria and Iraq and uh, what the Houthis are doing in Yemen, um, calling for engagement, not just of the Israelis, but of the U.S. Is, is that a call to widen? It seems like it is. Is it going to be effective? Well, he's threatening and he's not committing to... Uh conduct uh, expanded war. I mean, he, what he's been doing is very measured and limited uh, right now, conducting attacks across the border at uh, the troops stationed uh, on the northern border of Israel. And they're doing that really to force the Israelis to deploy forces there so they don't have them uh, in the operation in Gaza. But he has 130,000 rockets and missiles whose sophistication is considerably better than what Hamas has in terms of they're more lethal, they're more precise, and they're at greater range. They can range every town and city throughout Israel in its entirety, and the volume of it is absolutely staggering. Every single one of the rockets and missiles has been delivered to them in Lebanon uh, by Iran flying into the international Damascus airport and then trucking it into Lebanon. Mm. And he has not used those uh, in any consequence yet. And that is the power that he has. I mean, firing artillery or limited rockets at the Israeli troops is just designed to make certain that there's a significant amount of Israeli troops on the northern border. Uh, his, His real powerful punch comes from those rockets and missiles that he can range throughout Israel, and he has not executed that. He's threatening that use, and it's telling me that I'm not sure he's the decision-maker. I'm convinced that the Iranians are probably the decision-maker, and I think that that decision is based on how things are going in in Gaza, you know, for Hamas will, I think, drive that decision whether they really expand the war or not. Yeah, and Nasrallah said Hamas did this on their own. I had no idea. Iran isn't, you know, isn't the, the puppet master to, of any of this. Iran, I keep reading, doesn't want a wider war. And I wonder if that's a very Western way of thinking. Because the Hamas leadership has said, you know, we don't care. We'll be martyrs. You know, this, this is religious 
for them. Iran's leadership has said for years we have to wipe Israel off the map. Is is this the time they try to do that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of circular reporting going on uh, within our intelligence circles when you read something like that, uh, because the fact is Iran's strategic objective since early 1980s has been to dominate and control the Middle East and take control of the Persian Gulf flow of oil. And to achieve that strategic objective, they have strategic goal, excuse me, they have two objectives. One is to drive the United States military out of the region, and that is why they're attacking U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria, and they've accelerated that attack since October the 7th. And the second is the destruction of Israel. So the Hamas attack, after training the Hamas uh, military and terrorist organization at the IRGC training camp in Iran in September. There were 500 of them there, and we have, uh, you know, full platform video of all of that. Um, plus other forces were there doing that. The Hezbollah does the training uh, in Iran at that training center. Uh, that's clearly uh, Iran green-lighted this, this uh, attack, and some of the techniques that we use really reflect the imagination that Iran's people have in terms of, uh, you know, the motorized glider assaults and some of the equipment they use to penetrate the 40-mile wall high-tech barrier that they have that isolates uh, the Gaza Strip from, uh, from right. Israel, that their fingerprints are all over this thing. And Iran is about doing both of these things at the same time. And the administration tries to say that the attacks on our bases are not related to the October the 7th attack, and they absolutely are related. And it's incredibly naive not to recognize uh, that. This is all about Iran trying to achieve its objectives, drive the United States out of the region militarily, and also destroy the state of Israel. And they're dead serious about it. And they're certainly capable of expanding this war to accomplish it. Finally, General, we've, we haven't really talked much about, um, you know, how this ends. And the U.S. involvement thus far it has been extensive, obviously, aside from just placing our assets in the Eastern Med and in the Red Sea. But, but also uh, diplomatically, you know, these calls for, for these temporary pauses for humanitarian aid, it, it does seem very... I don't, uh, such a fine line to walk, right? Like, at, w- at what point is it a pause versus a ceasefire, and who breaks it first? That seems awkward. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of confusion here. The reality is, this is Israel's decision. They are systematically in a very difficult and brutal fight. And unless they come across hostages, that they need to stop fighting to get them out of there. I don't see them conducting any pause whatsoever because that would make them very vulnerable to ambushes and attacks by Hamas, who is not going to abide by any pause or ceasefire. And then the term pause, humanitarian pause, makes no sense to me. What are we really trying to do here? The Israelis, if they came across hostages, would would do whatever necessary to get them out of there safely. If that were, and obviously, if, if they need to cease fire to do that for a couple hours, they would do it. To get uh, humanitarian assistance in from the southern Rafala port of entry or to get 
national uh, foreigners, uh, foreign nationals out through that port of entry. That's so far away from the battle area, I don't know why you would have to c- conduct a pause to do it. This seems like a political thing. Mm. Uh, but the administration is pushing here to yeah. appease the pressure that is coming down on the Israelis because of civilian casualties. And they're, they're kind of using the phrase humanitarian pause because it's, it's not as radioactive uh, to the Israelis as a ceasefire would imply. But the Israelis are going to see right through that. I don't see them agreeing to it at all. All right. Very good. General Jackin, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Yeah. Great talking to you. Thank you. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Becoming the top elected member of Congress, second in line to the presidency, does not afford a lot of time to ease into the job. Just ask the new Speaker of the House, Louisiana Republican Mike Johnson. He just finished his first full week as House Speaker, already setting up spending fights with the Senate and President Biden. Johnson has also done a news conference with the Capitol Hill Press Corps, taking questions about his plan to avoid a government shutdown in just about two weeks and to consider emergency funding requests from the administration. There's a growing recognition that we are going to need another stopgap funding measure. Johnson says he's pitching a plan that would extend spending into mid-January to get past the holiday rush, but perhaps with some new conditions. So after a little more than a week in the job to propelled him from relative obscurity outside the Capitol to one of the most powerful positions in the federal government, what have we learned about Speaker Johnson's approach and his prospects to keep the job? For that, we turn to who else but Fox News senior congressional correspondent Chad Pergram. Well, Mike Johnson is probably going to have a very similar speakership to Kevin McCarthy. Now, I don't mean by that. That means he's going to be shown the door in a few months. Uh, but he has the same types of problems because he has the same members. And he also has the same narrow majority. And it might even be a smaller uh, narrow majority. We're hearing some rumblings of some uh, members who might resign. And they still might yet uh, expel George Santos. Mm. Uh, but what Mike Johnson had to do coming out of the block is get a couple of points on the board. And in so doing was to show that there was support in the House of Representatives for Israel and not combine this with uh, money for Ukraine and uh, and pass a bill uh, that uh, would move across the finish line that would just fund Israel, take care of their their immediate needs. And also down the road, and this will come in a couple of weeks here, maybe put out the fire uh, to fund the government. Now, the interesting mm-hmm. thing about the Israel bill is that he came up with a uh, from a Republican point of view, a pretty brilliant um, uh, sweetener there, let's call it that. Basically, what it would do is take the money um, from the IRS. This is money that they put in the uh, the, the big uh, IRA, the uh, infrastructure bill, uh, excuse me, not the infrastructure bill, but the, the stimulus package last year, the, the inflation reduction of Biden's agenda. Right, exactly, exactly. And say, we're not going to have all this IRS enforcement what we're going to do and hire all these IRS agents, we're going to pay for it with that. Now, the problem is that the Congressional Budget Office said, okay, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul here. That was Mm -hmm. the pay for for that. 
So you're the pay for for this. You're double counting essentially uh, because you're you're putting you're stripping one pay for for this pay for for Israel. And it appeals to Republicans because you say it's paid for and it's not brand new money and they don't want to add money on the books. But uh, just the idea that they are are sticking it to the Democrats and they're sticking it to the IRS, that goes a long way with a lot of Republicans. And so that's uh, that was the political gambit here by Speaker Johnson. But but isn't the the issue that that's not going to become law, Chad, that the Senate has already said they're not going to take it up. They're going to work on. You know, the big, you know, we'll see what the total is, $105, $106 billion right. package that includes Ukraine, that includes Israel, that includes Taiwan, that includes the southern border. Um, that's going to be the, the package that, that gets through the Senate. So how does the new speaker then handle that if the House bill never really even gets considered in the in the Senate? Well, you know, nobody really thought that they were going to take this in the Senate. And, uh, you know, the phrases that we hear, the stock phrases, dead on arrival, a non-starter. Mm-hmm. Well, I say that with a caveat because you have to start somewhere. And what Johnson is doing, and this is only apparent to people who really follow the, the process closely, is that regardless, they need a vehicle, a legislative vehicle that spends money because the Constitution requires that spending bills start in the mm-hmm. House of Representatives and send it to the Senate with the provisions that the House has laid down its marker send it over to the Senate, see what it can do with it. It will change it. You know, Mitch McConnell, the minority leader, wants uh, border uh, security in this bill. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing that's in the the Senate proposal, or at least what the administration has asked for here, is money for Ukraine, and then maybe send it back with some of those things in it, and maybe, you know, some provisions that make some uh, members of the House uh, dance. But, But, you know, the idea that you needed a vehicle, that's important. But this bill was never, ever going to go to the Senate nor go to the president's desk where he threatened to veto. I mean, that was kind of a fait accompli that this was a House-only exercise. But parliamentarily, this gives them something to work with, and they might be able to pass some sort of a supplemental international aid package maybe before Christmas. And I suspect that this is going to be our Christmas time project this year, Hmm. Jared. The other Christmas time project, and, and I'm curious to get your read on this, because if I'm not mistaken... On Thursday, uh, the speaker indicated maybe a new way to, to fund the government. A Is he calling it a laddered CR? Yes, yes, a laddered CR. That? Well, uh, you know, it was funny. Pete Aguilar, the uh, House Democratic Caucus chairman, said it wasn't something that he really knew or understood. And, and, you know, this is probably to some degree in the eye of the beholder. But the idea that you you pass a couple of appropriations bills first and you kind of then fund those agencies. So you're going up the ladder or you fund those agencies on a on a rolling scale. And that way you're able to implement some of your policy priorities right off the bat. You don't have to wait until they actually uh, approve everything, which would probably be January or, or later, based on what Johnson has said here so far. Uh, and because and Republicans want to have a, a say in the spending process right now, they are running on Democratic money. In other words, the Democrats under President Biden and a Democratic Senate and an old Democratic House they're running on that money right now. And so Republicans that only control the House of Representatives want to have some say. So you're able to start to implement your spending mm-hmm. priorities, which is not going to be 100 percent in the Republican court here. But you're able to do that a little more quickly. So um, it, it is remains it still a to be CR? seen. I mean, it's, is, still, it's still like a short term extension, though, right? So it, you're it, saying that it if, there's, is. if there's areas that everybody can kind of agree on, get that across right. the finish line and then kind of do a CR for what's left behind. 
Right, because there are different rungs on the ladder. So, yes, some of those things would be funded. Uh, what is unclear at this very early reading of this is whether or not this is just a trial balloon. And it's unclear whether or not Democrats would embrace this as a way to maybe keep the government open. I mean, maybe this is Mike Johnson's ask, saying this is how I'll do it. You know, the idea of doing CRs, interim spending bills, Band-Aid spending bills were, you know, legislative non grata to many Republicans. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what cost Kevin McCarthy his job. So if you're able to do something that's maybe a little bit in that direction, but it's still a CR, as you say, but it doesn't sound like a CR to some Republicans, uh, then maybe you're, you're getting there. And maybe the Democrats, you know, there's some give there, too. Maybe they have to actually just do a good old fashioned CR, which by rule, um, it renews all old funding at the current levels. We don't know just yet. And that's where I wonder if this is a trial balloon by Johnson or at least demonstrating, look, I have an idea. I'm bringing it to the table. And it's a new idea. You know what he needs to do. You ask what the what, what, what the Speaker Johnson speakership is going to be like. What he's really doing here is trying to contrast himself to Kevin McCarthy. Hmm. And he has to do that in ways and legislative ideas that have not been seen before. So, you know, that's kind of a way that he even if it doesn't happen, people say, you know, that was a pretty good idea. We like that. You know, what's your what's your next one, Mike? So maybe it's just that. I mean, I guess. So the question I sort of had leading in the sort of what kind of speaker will he be is he doesn't really view himself as a caretaker type of. of I mean, he's the speaker of the House, right? He, he intends to. You know, because there had been some talk within the Republican conference about maybe we just sort of put somebody up there and, you know, get through this year and, and then kind of reset. That doesn't seem to be the view that, that Johnson has of, of his position, is it? No. And I and I think if he were to suggest that, then you would start to hear from Messrs. Scalise and Jordan and <laughs> Emmer and and Roger Williams and Pete Sessions and and, and former President Trump and whoever else. So it's probably important for him to, to not give any imprimatur that he's only there for a part time. He might only be there for a very short period of time based on how the, the elections go next year or if Republicans get sick of him because he has the same problems that uh, that uh, Kevin McCarthy had. But, you know, you, you want to make sure that you have control or are exuding control. And that's certainly what Johnson is doing so far. And that's one of the reasons he was able to get into the job. I mean, you know, people kind of said, yeah. you know, how did he how did he get this gig? You know, nobody's ever heard of him. Nobody's nobody heard knows. of him. <laughs> but but you know what? He was he might not be well known on the outside, but he is well known on the yes. inside here on Capitol yes, he Hill. Is. And he is somebody who came, you know, from just far enough outside the primary leadership ranks. You know, he was the vice chairman of the Republican conference. So that's the number five position. You know, this is, you know, I don't want to sound like this is, is Kurt Vonnegut would say the vice president in charge of volcanoes or something. You know, you're, you're down, the, you're down the, the, the ledger there, but you're in charge of something. And people know who you are. And he didn't get to that position without being able to present some of these ideas and those ideas having resonance, but not having the baggage and the barnacles that the Kevin McCarthy's and the Tom mm. Emmer's and others people had at the top rungs of the leadership. Leadership adjacent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's talk about down the hall, the other side of, of Congress, the U.S. Senate. Um, the Senate was in late uh, Wednesday night because Republicans were taking one of their own members to task in uh, Senator Tuberville and his hold of hundreds of senior military officers. I've not I mean, have you seen sort of a public 
I know that privately there have been conversations that Republicans mm-hmm. have had with Tuberville trying to convince him to break this public hold, flogging is to do what it in a got. public space like that. Yeah. Have you seen that before? Not very often. Um, I've seen it a couple of times back in the 90s uh, with Mark Hatfield, uh, who was the chair of the Senate Finance Committee, dealing with his vote against the balanced budget amendment. There's been a few instances, but not uh, where you have a number of members ganging up on one. And and in particular, in this case, Republicans going after Tommy Tuberville. Uh, There are some very frayed nerves up here and some very angry people, I think even more so maybe on the Republican side. Uh, because the Republicans are like, you know, we're supposed to be with the military and mm-hmm. you're undercutting us here. And the Democrats were more than happy. And maybe this is part of the reason why they didn't try to do a few of these along the way. I mean, this has been going on since late last winter or sp- early spring. You know, this has been going on for most of the year here. Uh, maybe spend a couple extra days in all- over the August recess, you know, weekends and knock out a few of these. But they never did that because Democrats enjoyed the politics of it. Number one, they thought there might actually be an effort to bridge the impasse here. They often said, oh, this is a Republican problem. He's a Republican senator. Mitch McConnell, you figure it out, which he didn't. But number three, the idea that Republicans uh, or Democrats could sit back and say Republicans, oh, look at that obstructionist Tommy Tuberville. He is blocking the military from having its top officers at a time now of war mm-hmm. amid what's going on in the Middle East. So, so it beg- Democrats it- are a little bit culpable in that sense, politically, politically. Sure. But... To your point, yes, and this is why there is an effort, and you're probably going to hear more about this in the coming days and weeks. Uh, You've heard of things like uh, the nuclear option, uh, a rules change, uh, what the Senate might do to actually expedite some of these nominations, a whole slate of them all at once. It's not going to be any of those things, although it's going to be reported as that. That's not what it is. But the term you're going to hear is a standing order. So what is a standing order in the Senate? Well, standing orders have been around for a long time. You basically put something on the floor, and it's a resolution, and you have to get on it, so it needs to clear cloture the first time, overcome a filibuster at the front end, same on the back end, and then you have to pass it. And what it essentially says is, this is how we're going to do things on this particular issue. In fact, the Homeland Security Committee was created on a standing order post 9-11, and they've never actually kind of codified that. That's just kind of how the Homeland Security Committee rolls, uh, you know, 20 years later. So what they would do is create this standing order, which would enable the Senate then to adopt in one fell swoop on block uh, a, a big batch of these military promotions. And it would take a little bit of time to approve and debate the standing order. But that kind of like it's kind of like a rule in the House of Representatives but, where you have a rule that they that they then allow the bill to come to the floor. This would allow this to come to the floor and Tommy Tuberville could not block it. I was going to ask. So there wouldn't be a, a mechanism for him to, to put like an anonymous hold on it or even a public hold on it. No, no, no. He could now he okay. can he can vote. No, he can object right. to quick consideration of it. But if you go through the parliamentary traps, Interesting. Two rounds of cloture to end filibusters to get onto the standing order and to end debate on the standing order. And that takes a little bit of time and then actually clear the filibuster on the slate of nominees themselves. Then guess what? You've confirmed, you know, probably close to 400 nominees. So that, that probably answers the question I was going to ask, which is, has this Republican public pressure campaign changed the mind at all of, of Senator Tuberville? No, not really. I mean, you might start to see more attention on this because we have a war in the Middle East 
and people are starting to be concerned about what this is doing to readiness and the, the families of military people and people, whether or not they're willing to still hang around in the military. Why not just retire if they're going to treat you that bad? Uh, so that's part of it, too. Uh, I would say that the reason, you know, this has popped up on the radar from a news perspective several times at different iterations since this started back in February, March. And it's been very hit and miss. And, you know, we got to the end of the the summer and it was still out there. And, you know, the big thing looming was uh, trying to confirm, uh, you know, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So they they did that as a one-off, which they probably would have anyway. And that was one of the holds that Tommy Topperville had as well. But uh, the idea that you had the war in the Middle East, and that started to focus a little more attention on this. But moreover, you didn't have a crisis over funding the government, which was what we had in, uh, in September, came very close to shutting down the government. And then you didn't have this imbroglio over trying to find a Speaker of the House. So now that there's not as much attention on mm. those types of issues, we might again, if they, you know, flirt with shutting down the government here in the middle of November. But that said, right now, this, you know, nothing can exist in a vacuum. And so that's partly why this thing with Tuberville is getting a little more attention, to say nothing of the fact that these Republicans actually went down to the floor and Mm -hmm. publicly flogged him, their fellow Republican senator, which is exactly what they did, which, to your point, you don't see play out in public very often. I said on a on a radio show earlier this week that we thought that the hard part for the Congress was going to get a new speaker in place. But now we're seeing that you have to govern as well. And that's no challenge is a big challenge as well. So, boy, it's going to be a a busy couple of weeks for you on the Capitol Hill, I think, uh, with the new speaker and all of these sort of, uh, you know, I think people trying to figure him out. Right. What's his strategy? What's his his sort of uh, role here in trying to move forward a, a conservative Republican agenda? Yeah, 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 figuring him out and then seeing how he responds to these crises, again, funding the government right away, dealing with this supplemental bill, probably dealing with funding the government again in, in January if they haven't mm. you know, shut down the government in mid-November. And if they're able to do this and get out for November, uh, you know, middle of November here, end of November for Thanksgiving and probably Christmas, um, you, you know, that's, that, that is a tall order. And we have, you know what, we've not even talked about, Jared, impeachment and investigations. Right. And that's out there in the back. That's good, because I know that this week, I know that this week Johnson was asked about it, um, and Mm -hmm. he kind of took a, 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 maybe a circumspect kind of approach to it. Is that maybe Mm -hmm. the right word? Mm Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, these committees have been doing a little bit of work behind the scenes, but not really. And, you know, when it comes to impeachment, you know, they talked about under Speaker McCarthy, remember he used to be a big deal around here, uh, (laughs) maybe trying to do impeachment by Christmas. Well, that's not going to happen now. Right. And you had Anna Paulina Luna, Republican from Florida, say, oh, I think it'll be after the first of the year. Maybe, maybe not. But you see, see what the Speaker crisis did is it set all this back Mm. by at least a month at Mm. minimum. And then you have these other things coming up. Uh, and it's not as though he's not for these things, because that's, you know, if, had he been against this, they would have, you know, that would have been a strike against him in the speaker's race. So that's not the case. Uh, he's going to continue these things, but he still has the same problem if they ever go to an impeachment vote, which is what? It's about the math. That's right. Same equation that faced Kevin McCarthy. Well, and we'll be in an election year. And as you know, Chad, Congress is always super productive in an election year taking tough votes. 
And, and, and there's probably some Republicans who would prefer to have this kind of be out there drifting into the, uh, you know, February mm-hmm. and March and whatever else sure. because it undercuts, you know, President Biden. Although, you know, there might be some, you know, sometimes some Republicans that maybe don't want to take that vote. Well, exactly. Nor do they have the votes. I mean, the worst thing uh, to happen would bring an impeachment resolution to impeach the president or to begin an impeachment inquiry. Remember, they never actually did that and have it fail. And if there's uh, any indication of how well this is going, just look to the uh, hearing that they had, uh, you know, a few weeks ago before the speaker's crisis began, that many Republicans were critical of how they conducted it and said, you know, you had witnesses testifying that we don't think this all rises to the level of an impeachment. So that's not exactly making your case there. Well, it's going to be a busy few weeks and uh, we always get to the holidays. And I know that's a busy time, strangely enough, on on Capitol Hill. This uh, year proves uh, that it's probably going to be no different. So, Chad, get some rest. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is joined by Fox News Radio's Kristen Goodwin to discuss the latest news out of the White House this week. And it's Election Day Tuesday. Cook Political Report's Jessica Taylor joins us with a look at some significant state races in Kentucky, Virginia, and Mississippi. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jessica Rosenthal, and this is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.